Welcome back to the program. We often think of the 60s as a time when the left was in the ascendancy, when great social movements like the women's movement and the anti-war movement and the civil rights movement were given their birth. In fact, arguably, the most lasting legacy of the 60s may be the rise of modern conservatism. The history of modern conservatism and of the current Republican Party has its roots in the early 1960s and continues into the confusion we see in the party today. My guest, Rick Perlstein, has been one of our most astute chroniclers of that history, beginning with his examination of Barry Goldwater in Before the Storm and through his look at the 60s and 70s in Nixonland. Now Perlstein takes us on the next phase of his examination of the handoff of the party from Nixon to Reagan. But more than a political story, it's the story of the transformation of America. A time when America suffered its first military defeat, was shocked by the oil crisis, the hostage crisis, inflation, stagflation, a criminal presidency, a rogue CIA, and more. But it also became a time when, as a solution to our multiple problems, reality gave way to fantasy. When facts gave way to fiction, when, like television or the movies, make-believe would take us to a place we'd rather be. And leading that transformation was Ronald Reagan. Rick Perlstein is a historian and journalist, a former writer for The Village Voice and The New Republic. He's the author of the previous books Before the Storm and Nixonland. It is my pleasure to welcome Rick Perlstein here to talk about his newest work, The Invisible Bridge, The Fall of Nixon and the Rise of Reagan. Rick Perlstein, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you. That was a marvelous introduction. I think I'm going to transcribe that for my speeches. (laughs) Thank you. Appreciate it. I want to talk first about the state of the country in this period you write about, in the early early to mid-70s, and yes. the sense of chaos that existed in the country at the time. Yeah, uh, I quote a senator uh, who spoke during the Watergate hearings, which of course appeared on TV and everyone watched, saying that Watergate was like a national funeral that went on day after day. And it came, of course, right after, um, I'm talking about the Watergate hearings, came right after America loses its first war. I mean, we're talking about 58,000 lives, billions in treasure, uh, thrown away at something that looked like a complete waste. Uh, and then we also had uh, that spring of 1973, and then most dramatically after the Arab oil embargo that October, something that they called an energy shortage, which was a completely new concept. Americans didn't even know energy was something that they could suffer a scarcity of. It was just kind of like the air and the water. It was just there. And uh, what I write about is not only was this a very frightening time, you know, there was other things like, you know, crazy crime, you know, Patty Hearst getting kidnapped and joining the terrorist gang. But it was also a time of, of remarkable civic energy and I think a real maturation in American political culture. I mean, the fact that people were sitting in front of the TV day after day and following this extraordinary complex set of hearings about the most basic questions about constitutional government, the fact that Americans were thinking about what it would mean to conserve energy, and the fact that Americans were beginning to think of what it would mean for America to go forward not as the policeman for the rest of the world was a remarkable and incredible thing. And that's the struggle I write about. I write about the process in which that reality uh, was uh, transfigured into uh, Ronald Reagan's reality, beginning with his uh, presidential campaign in 1975 and 1976. 
And to understand it, it's really important to also understand the period that came before this sense of post-war prosperity, which had right. been so all-consuming, which had been so so positive in the psyche of the country. Yeah. Yes, I mean, what we're talking about is between the end of World War II and 1972 and 1973, when, of course, we begin to suffer the stagnation and, and rising inequality, that's the trend that we face today, the real incomes of the ordinary average American, the guy who probably didn't even graduate high school, uh, who may have grown up in a home that had an outhouse, and maybe if you grew up in the South, didn't even have electricity, that real income doubled. So I like to say that guys who were born without houses uh, might even have vacation houses, you know, just work in their factory with, with or without a high school degree. And uh, the sense that we defeated Hitler, you know, America was on top of the world. Europe was in ruins. And uh, just this incredible sense that um, during the 60s, anything was possible. So if you're a left winger, you know, the idea that you could revolution, you could transform society in a revolution that would, you know, sweep away all hierarchies. If you were uh, Lyndon Johnson uh, and you were kind of a liberal member of the defense establishment, the idea that you could transform this third world country, Vietnam, into um, a first world country and a free country. Uh, you know, Lyndon Johnson used to say he wanted to create a Tennessee Valley Authority for the Mekong River Del uh, Delta. And even if you're on the right, you know, the idea that you could uh, create a thriving, dynamic economy by getting rid of all this government. This, this, this sense of enormous possibility in the 1960s, which couldn't have been a bigger contrast to the doldrums and uh, depression of the 1970s. And all of this hit this wall in nine, around 1976 with this realization that all of these infinite possibilities were bound up by limits, by things that we couldn't right. do suddenly and that we couldn't accomplish. Right. right. It's really it's really fascinating to uh, read in my book about uh, Jerry Brown, mm -hmm. who ran for president in 1976 and just became a sensation. You know, he entered the campaign late. Jimmy Carter, who also talked about limits, was sailing towards the nomination. And suddenly everyone wanted to hear from this guy, Jerry Brown, who would talk about spaceship Earth. You know, he would quote the book, Small is Beautiful. He would say that we need to arrest our economic growth, arrest our population growth. People just ate it up with a spoon. Uh, this idea that the politician who would be successful uh, in the second half of the 70s and into the 1980s would be the one who could kind of capture this sense of a chastened America, uh, an America that was uh, seeing the world in much more realistic terms. I mean, that's what the pundits told us. And so it seemed to be the case, especially, you know, with the election of 1974, in which a whole uh, cadre of new young Democrats, many of whom had never held office before, were swept in. They called them the Watergate babies. This was supposed to be the future of American politics. And then comes Reagan. And Reagan comes along and basically says, it'll all be all right. All of this concern, all of this, this fear of limits can all be dealt with somehow magically. Yeah. I mean, the only thing he would say about the energy crisis was that you no, know, uh, it's caused by environmentalists who won't let us build enough nuclear plants and that sort of thing. And he has this incredible quote that I found in the book that 
the biggest, most important thing Americans can do is turn off the lights when they walk from one room to another to go to watch television. He literally says that. Um, and when it comes to Vietnam, I unearthed an extraordinary radio broadcast he made uh, right after the fall of Saigon. And, you know, you remember that. It was an incredible sure. trauma uh, when, you know, even the few hundred Americans who were left over in the embassy basically had to be airlifted out of the country uh, because it wasn't even safe for them. And the country that we spent so much money and lives and treasure uh, propping up, South Vietnam, turns out to be a complete Potemkin village. And then the next thing happens, um, thousands of Vietnam Viet refugees from Vietnam, the people who you know heroically joined our crusade, come to America as refugees. And it's very similar to what happened when the kids from Honduras and Guatemala uh, came up uh, to the border uh, today. This idea that they were going to steal our jobs, this idea that they were diseased, um, they were uh, bivouacked in a uh, army facility that had to be guarded 24 hours a day because they were afraid that they would be the victim of terrorist attacks by, you know, resentful white people. And what did Ronald Reagan say about all this? I found the radio broadcast in which he said, well, the media isn't reporting the good stuff. You know, the, the, the media is full of liberal bias. And they won't tell you that the USS Midway had been rescuing widows and orphans out of the South China Sea. And he tells this story that sounds like uh, a miracle of the loaves and fishes straight out of the gospel, according to <laughs> uh, Reader's Digest. You know, he says that children were cured of ammonia. Uh, sailors were giving mothers the shirts off their back. I mean, it's just an incredible utopian scene. And he quotes um, Pope Pius Twelfth saying America has always been and will always be the hope of the world. Listening to this broadcast, you know, which were, was broadcast in hundreds of kind of middle American radio stations, you would think that the entire function of this giant aircraft carrier in Southeast Asia over the past 10 years had been rescuing widows and orphans and not serving as a platform for, you know, the terror bombings of civilians in North Vietnam. It was an extraordinary performance, and it turned out that uh, it was very attractive to Americans who were just weary of this uh, imperative to rethink uh, the pieties of the past. Another example of that is Reagan's VFW speech that he makes in 1980, where he paints Vietnam right. as a noble cause. Yes, and this is a very important part of the story that I'm telling. When he gave that speech, the reaction was from the pundits, from the people who were interpreting, you know, politics for the country was this was a humongous gaffe and maybe his candidacy would not even recover. How could he say something that was so absurd? And of course, what they didn't understand was this was not a bug in the system. This was the feature. This was uh, what Reaganism was all about. In the book, I point out that whenever Ronald Reagan was asked about Watergate in 1973, 1974, he would always dismiss it. He would say the Watergate uh, burglars were not criminals at heart. He would say that what the Democrats did was worse. He would say that uh, the investigation of Watergate, which was really a remarkable bipartisan accomplishment, was a liberal witch hunt or a lynching. And once again, uh, there was an extraordinary column by the columnists uh, Evans and Novak, Robert Evans and Roland, no uh, Robert Novak and Roland Evans, who were you know basically syndicated again in hundreds of papers. 
it came two months before Nixon's resignation when you know, Nixon's approval rating was you know, 20%. The number of people who identified as Republicans was 18%. And Evan Novak said that Reagan's aides were beside themselves because their boss refused to denounce Richard Nixon. And then until he did so, and unless he did so, he wouldn't have a political future. They wanted him to become president. Uh, what they didn't understand was that this was an enormously attractive message to people. This idea that you could just stop worrying, you could kind of do what America did during the bicentennial, which was just kind of unproblematically, uncomplicatedly, in an almost childlike fashion, celebrate the idea of America. And, you know, I think that this had an enormous impact uh, on politics yet today and in a very deleterious way. And in fact, what's so fascinating is that in many ways what Reagan was simply doing, but in a much more theatrical and effective way, was channeling and becoming the kind of apotheosis of Nixon's silent majority. That's right. Uh, You know, I like to say that, you know, I've written these three books about the right. Uh, The first one in the early 60s really kind of deals with the right wing infrastructure that came into place and that we, you know, the same folks that kind of run places like Fox News and the Christian Coalition. Uh, The next stage in the story is Richard Nixon, who, yes, he gathers the forces of what he called the silent majority. The loud minority were the bad guys. They were the protesters. They were the people who were always kind of uh, looking down their noses at ordinary American folks who just wanted law and order. But that really was a politics that was rooted in anger and pessimism and a dark paranoia. And I say that the people who reelected Richard Nixon with an enormous landslide in 1974 didn't do so despite the energies that created Watergate, but in some sense because of them. You know, they wanted to stick it to their enemies. But what Ronald Reagan did was he took the same sort of uh, division of forces. You know, the good guys are the, 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 the ordinary white middle class Americans and the bad guys are, you know, the liberals and the radicals and the minorities who are kind of forcing us to uh, think dark thoughts. And he told the story in a very positive and affirmative way. It wasn't that he wasn't mean and nasty. I mean, folks in California know that when, you know, people like Angela Davis were teaching in UCLA, he was saying the nastiest things imaginable imaginable about them. You know, he said about the the new left, you know, if they want a bloodbath, let's get it over with. You know, he said about the hippies that a hippie is someone who, um, you know, uh, looks like Tarzan, dresses like Jane and smells like cheetah. I mean, nasty stuff, you know, violent stuff. But he did it with a smile. And then as the 70s come and this kind of dark mood sets upon the nation, you almost never saw that sneer in his face anymore. He uh, had this remarkable ability to, um, to project this kind of blithe affect in the midst of what others, everyone else, pretty much everyone else, saw as moral and social chaos. The other aspect with Reagan is the pure consistency of it. And I think sometimes in in the way Reagan is venerated, we confuse consistency and authenticity. Reagan was giving the same speech over and over again. So much of this was just a continuation of the time for choosing speech that he gave for Goldwater in 1964. Absolutely. Absolutely. I tell a story about what would happen when a young journalist in Sacramento would finally get a get an interview with Governor Reagan, and he would be absolutely thrilled uh, at all this wonderful stuff he was getting. Uh, and he got ready to write his article, and then he realized that everything he had heard 
was the exact same stuff Ronald Reagan had told every single other reporter for years. Uh, he had this rap, basically. Uh, you know, he got it from places like Reader's Digest. He got it from conservative publications. He would write it down on note cards. And um, it was very hard to shake him from uh, a trope or a fact or a rhetorical figure of speech once it kind of sedimented itself into his brain because, uh, you know, even if it, you know, was proven to him that it was false. So, you know, all kinds of um, falsehoods were introduced into his rhetoric. And it wasn't even the case, always even only the case when, uh, you know, he was a politician in the 60s and 70s and 80s. Uh, you can go on YouTube and see a remarkable speech he gave in 1948 for the Democratic ticket and Harry Truman, in which he blames inflation on the greed of big corporations. It's, you know, it's, 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 it's the, the good guys and the bad guys are exactly reversed. And in that speech, he tells the story of a man who is, who's saving for being eaten up by inflation. And he said uh, he was in such bad shape that he had to go to, back to work. And with that impeccable comic timing, which was, you know, one of his gifts, he delivers the punchline. Mr. Smith is 90 years old. Uh, now, he gives the name, full name of the guy. He says he read about it in an Associated Press article. Using the research tools that are now in, at our disposal, I can read, you know, I can search hundreds of newspapers to carry the Associated Press feed. I'm utterly convinced he completely made this guy up. The other interesting part of this is the nexus between all that, that you write about what was going on politically and psychically in the country and looking at the struggles that Edmund Morris had in trying to write his biography of Reagan and beginning to understand perhaps better the nexus between the two. Yeah, I don't really understand why Edmund Morris was not able to uh, get at his subject. I mean, people will remember Edmund Morris got, you know, millions of dollars to write a Reagan biography. He got uh, exclusive access to Ronald Reagan in the White House. And he kind of threw up his hands and realized he couldn't figure this guy out. So he ended up writing this uh, fictionalized history, right, in which he literally made up characters and right. wrote himself into the story and all this stuff. Um, to me, um, if you understand uh, the psychological profile of the adult child of the alcoholic, that explains a heck of a lot about Ronald Reagan. And uh, to go back to his childhood, his dad uh, was a kind of a failed shoe salesman. He moved the family around constantly whenever he would lose a job. Uh, he was always uh, under threats for being arrested for uh, drunkenness during Prohibition. Of course, his dad was also you know, because he was a drunk during Prohibition, he was a criminal. Um, his mom uh, was this supposedly saintly woman who was very pious, uh, a fundamentalist Protestant. The, the, the dad was a Catholic, and uh, she was always going around doing good. She was actually a, supposedly a faith healer, um, and she would um, visit prisoners and read them Bible verses and play them songs on her mandolin. And she was so trusted in the community that prisoners would be remanded to her care. So you'd have these kind of ex-cons literally living on the Reagan in the Reagan family's uh, sewing room. Now, while this is happening, Ronald Reagan and his, his brother are, are sleeping two to a bed. So it's a very strange household. You got these, these ex-cons coming in and out. You got this absent drunken father, this absent do-gooding mother. And if you look at photographs of 
Ronald Reagan when he was, you know, prior to the age of 10. Uh, and if you look at descriptions of him that, that people recall, he was really this lost, confused kid. But then he kind of rec- he kind of works this inner transformation. I call him uh, an athlete of the imagination. You know, I compare him to um, his sports heroes, you know, Jack Dempsey and Babe Ruth. He was that good, as, as good as they were at sports. He was at kind of imagining this heroic narrative for himself. You know, he started reading adventure stories. You know, he started um, imbibing the very, very melodramatic sports culture of the 1920s, the golden age of sport in which people like Babe Ruth were literally seen as larger-than-life superheroes. And so when you look at pictures of him kind of from the age of 10 on, when he, be, when he, when he, when he begins this process, he's immediately recognizable to us as Ronald Reagan. He always has this inner glow. You can see his awareness of the camera. I say he's a, he was always as aware of the lines his body presented as a dancer. You see him inventing Ronald Reagan. And to me, uh, what Edmund Morris was trying to do was get beyond that shell to some sort of core underneath. But as Nancy Reagan pointed out, you know, he, did, he didn't even let her in to that core. And you've got to be able to entertain the possibility that the shell that someone builds around their kind of inner conflict and inner neurosis can be so strong and so sturdy that it almost replaces the neurosis itself. Uh, that there is no kind of, um, that, that becomes the core of the self. And for most people who try to do that, you know, once they kind of meet the adult realities and the kind of heroic narrative that they create to transcend their traumas fall away, it can cause some serious mental illness, uh, nervous breakdown, depression, substance abuse, all those sorts of things. But Reagan was better at it than most of us. And he was able to live to his dying day utterly confident in the face of all sorts of chaos that was around him. Again, working out in that mental gymnasium and creating a heroic narrative that made half the people around him feel really, really good to want to follow him. And the other half, which, you know, probably a lot of our listeners saw through it and saw him as a gigantic phony. The thing that is so remarkable, I suppose, is looking at the difference, the contrast in the way the sort of psychic and difficult upbringing of Richard Nixon played out in his personality and everything you just said with respect to Reagan, how it played out for him and how the country went along for the ride with both of them. With both of them, exactly. That's kind of my method, right? Uh, I'm very influenced by a political scientist named James McGregor Burns, mm-hmm. who died last month. And he wrote this wonderful, very rich, uh, incredibly accomplished and intellectually dense book called Leadership. And the core idea in that book is for a leader to really capture the imagination of a country, to really kind of transform the country in his own image, the inner psychic drives of the individual that are produced, you know, in their upbringing have to kind of call the tune uh, for the inner psychic drives of the broader nation as a whole. So in Nixon's case, there were so many people who felt so resentful uh, about the 60s and uh, the moral, what they saw as the moral preening of the liberals and the left, uh, that his anger at um you know, sort of the, the swells and the, the, um, the sophisticates who he saw looking down at him 
uh, kind of matched with the desires of millions of Americans to stick it to these people, right? In Reagan's case, his ability to kind of project moral clarity, uh, this crystalline confidence in the face of in the face of chaos, was just catnip to people who uh, were just deeply traumatized by the chaos of the 1970s. Uh, the man met the movement in the same way that the man met the movement uh, in 2008 with Barack Obama. You know, this guy who uh, comes from a million different kind of social and cultural and racial backgrounds and seemed to hold out the promise of knitting together uh, the broke, broken fabric of the American nation. The title, which captures all of this, comes from a quote from Khrushchev, of all people. Right. Isn't it ironic that, you know, this this, this communist uh, is the guy who um, is giving Richard Nixon political advice. It's a quote from Khrushchev. Uh, it was something that he he, he told Nixon during uh, the kitchen, basically his visit to Moscow in 1959, in which the most famous aspect of it was the kitchen debate. Uh, he told him, if the people see an imaginary river out there, don't tell them there isn't an imaginary river. Build them an imaginary bridge. And uh, to me, there's a kind of benign coloration of this, that any leader, you know, creates a national mythology for people to identify with. I mean, certainly someone I deeply admire, Franklin Roosevelt, built an invisible bridge for Americans racked by the Depression. You know, there is no, nothing to fear but fear itself. Um, Ronald Reagan did it. Richard Nixon did it. But Ronald Reagan did it in a way that, um, as I say, deforms our political culture yet today. In the preface of the book, I, I, I quote a bunch of politicians, Republican and Democrat, including Barack Obama, making this ritual announcement that America is the greatest nation in the world, uh, the greatest nation that has ever been in the world. And I, I, I find it's reductio ad absurdium in the nomination hearings of the woman that Barack Obama named to be his United Nations ambassador, a great scholar and human rights activist, Samantha Power. She'd written an article in the New Republic 10 years before her uh, hearing in which she talked about how America needed to reckon with the crimes that had been committed in its name uh, in places like um, Vietnam, uh, in places like Central America. The kind of mature, mature uh, assessment of the complexity of American history and its role in the world. And at her hearing, Senator Marco Rubio of Florida, Republican, of course, looks her in the eye, reads her a quote from that article, in which she specifically uh, uses the word apology, we need to apologize, and he says, what precisely does America need to apologize for? And this great Harvard scholar who, uh, you know, has done more for humanity probably in her fingernail than Marco Rubio has done his whole career, said, America is the greatest nation in the world and it has nothing to apologize for. She had to make that ritual announcement that we are going to, we have to be willing to turn off our critical faculties. Uh, and she was willing to do it in order to um, get the job. But that shows how deformed our political culture has become by this Reaganite gesture of the invisible bridge. And how can we solve our problems? You know, how can we solve these massive problems we have before us? Global warming, 
bankers who are, you know, getting away with fraud. Um, you know, Republican Party that's completely out of control. Unless we are willing to acknowledge those problems on the broadest possible terrain. Hard to do when it's always morning in America, I suppose. That's right. That's right. And it's not always morning in America. You know, America is a great <laughs> country. I love it. But it has a lot to answer for, and we can always make it better. And how can we make it better if we already think that it's perfect? Rick Perlstein, his book is The Invisible Bridge, The Fall of Nixon and the Rise of Reagan. Rick, it's been a pleasure. I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you so very kindly. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. 